This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to this edition of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Protests in our streets, tell-all books from the president's niece and from his former national security advisor, whistleblowers testifying on Capitol Hill. All are in the news this week, and all are examples of something Jewish law takes very seriously and encourages just as seriously. This week's topic, therefore, is Speaking Truth to Power. In its pure form, Speaking Truth to Power simply means this. A person in power either has committed or plans to commit an unjust act. That person is challenged on moral, ethical, and or legal grounds by someone whose power to prevent the unjust act is limited to the effectiveness of his or her words. In its broader form, it can mean public demonstrations against those who abuse their power in ways that result in an injustice, such as police using excessive force, sometimes resulting in fatal consequences and all too often against people of color. Speaking truth to power can also mean public disclosure of abuses of power in forums, courtrooms, for example, or legislative hearing rooms, by people who have information regarding those abuses. We've been seeing both these forms recently, including this week in the hearing held on Wednesday by the House Judiciary Committee, in the release of John Bolton's insider look at how Donald Trump conducts his presidency on Tuesday, and also on Tuesday, the beginning of an effort to get the courts to block publication of Mary Trump's very negative look at her uncle and the toxic family, in her publisher's words, that gave rise to Donald Trump. Judaism not only believes in speaking truth to power, it encourages it. Not only is speaking truth to power built into Judaism's very foundation, no power on earth or in heaven is shielded from it. Speaking truth to power includes even challenging God. Certainly, earthly wielders of power must be challenged, and examples abound in the Tanakh, in the Bible. One of the most outstanding examples of this is the confrontation between the prophet Nathan and King David. This was a public confrontation, and it took place in front of the entire royal court. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and she became pregnant. The king then tried to cover up his crime by setting up the death of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, and one of David's most loyal army officers. That setup not only cost Uriah his life, but it also cost the lives of a number of other soldiers in order to cover up the fact that the king had ordered Uriah to be killed. The dramatic confrontation between Nathan and David is recorded in the book of 2 Samuel. Here's how it played out. One of the functions of Israel's kings is that they sat in judgment on difficult cases. Nathan, therefore, concocts a case for David to judge, hoping to get David to admit his guilt. Quote, Nathan came to David and said, There were two men in the same city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had only one little hue lamb he had bought. He tended it, and it grew up together with him and his children. It was like a daughter to him. One day a traveler came to the rich man, but he was loath to take anything from his own flocks and herds to prepare a meal for the guest, so he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it. David flew into a rage against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. 
And Nathan said to David, that man is you, unquote. In any other place, the king's reaction likely would have been to remove Nathan's head from his shoulders then and there. But all David could do, in full view of everyone present that day, is admit his guilt. Quote, David said to Nathan, I stand guilty before the Lord. Unquote. From almost the moment of his birth, from almost the moment when God first reached out to Abraham, one of the hallmarks of Judaism has been its mandate to speak truth to power. And that includes challenging God, if need be, if God acted unjustly or is about to, or because he keeps making promises that go unfulfilled. That's what Abraham did and what Moses did after him. Abraham, of course, is our founding father. The line of the people Israel descends from him. Moses is our lawgiver and greatest prophet. No one before him or after him had so up close and personal a relationship with God. Their experiences in challenging God are meant to inform us and guide us. That's why the Torah reports those episodes to us, and that's why a Nathan can stand up to a David and keep his head on his shoulders. To understand this, therefore, we need to examine those critical episodes in the lives of Abraham and Moses. When we're introduced to Abraham, or Abram as he was then called, speaking truth to power probably was the last thing he would have ever thought to do. Certainly no one who came before him in the Torah, not Adam or Eve or Noah, ever dared to challenge God, and Abram wasn't about to start. When God appears to Abram in a dream and tells him to leave his home and his homeland and go to an unspecified location, he probably has no idea who's giving him that instruction, but he obviously believes it's a God who's talking to him, so Abram doesn't utter a word. He simply picks himself up and does what God tells him to do. You need to understand who Abram was. We have the picture of him as a lonely man of faith, as the late Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik put it. But he was anything but. In fact, he was a powerful sheikh who traveled with a fighting force of 318 men and probably another 700 to 800 people under his command. And yet he heads to wherever the voice tells him to go without asking any questions. Powerful though he may have been, he had no voice where God is concerned. His silence continues once Abram arrives in Canaan and God promises him that his offspring will be incredibly numerous. The silence may not sound unusual. It was a great and wonderful promise after all. But it is unusual because this Abram is 75 years old. His wife is 65 years old. They have no children and they're not likely to get any. Yet Abraham doesn't ask God where these numerous offspring will come from. Such silence, however, is not in his DNA. Abram doesn't stay silent for very long. He'll test the waters by challenging a king, and then he'll take on God himself. A few years after Abram arrives in Canaan, we have what could be called the First World War, when four kings descend on Canaan from the east and overwhelm the armies of five Canaanite kings. When Abram's nephew and family are captured in one of those battles and he hears about it, Abram musters his 318 troops, gets more troops from his allies, and heads out on a rescue mission. He's so successful that he not only rescues his family, but he frees all the other captives and returns all of the booty to the king of Sodom. 
Abram is then offered a share of the wealth he just brought back, but he refuses. His ethics won't allow him to take anything from the king of Sodom, the king of the town whose reputation, we've already been told, is evil to its core. And Abram finally finds his voice. A bit insultingly, perhaps, he says to the king of evil Sodom, quote, I will not take as much as a thread or a sandal strap, a shoelace, of what's yours, unquote. That was nothing compared to what happens next. Because Abram just gave up a small fortune, God feels the need to reassure him that what he gave up by not taking what the king of Sodom offered him will be repaid on a much larger scale. Quote, Fear not, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me, seeing that I shall die childless? God said, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them so shall your offspring be, unquote. Understand what's happening here. God is doubling down on his promises to Abram, but this time Abram isn't buying any of it. He challenges God to prove it. Abram does get a son after that, Ishmael. Abram assumes God has finally kept his word, but it was the wrong assumption. Thirteen years after the birth of Ishmael, when Abraham, as he's then called, is 99 years old and Sarah is 89 years old, God says Ishmael is not the one. The promise will come through the son Sarah will give birth to. This was too much for Abraham. He had no words for something so ridiculous. All he could do was fall on the ground in hysterical laughter. Quote, Abraham threw himself on his face and laughed as he said to himself, can a child be born to a man 100 years old or can Sarah bear a child at 90? Unquote. This time, rather than challenging God verbally, Abraham laughs derisively. God's word is not just questionable, it's laughable. And he lets God know it in graphic style. God does deliver on that promise, though, when Sarah, despite her age, gives birth to Isaac a year later. But before God delivers on that promise, we have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain. This will be a major confrontation between God and Abraham. God said, quote, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? For I have singled him out, that he may instruct his children and his posterity to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right. Then the Lord said to Abraham, The outrage of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grave, I will go down to see whether they have acted altogether according to the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will take note. Abraham came forward and said, Will you sweep away the innocent along with the guilty? What if there should be fifty innocent within the city? Will you then wipe out the place and not forgive it for the sake of the innocent fifty who were in it? It's profane for you to do such a thing. He repeats, it's profane for you, the judge of all the earth, no less, not to do that which is just, unquote. When God agrees to spare the cities for the 50 righteous, Abraham gets him to agree for the sake of 45 righteous, then 40, then 30, then 20, and finally, even if there are only 10 righteous. He stops at 10, probably because he figures he'd managed to keep God from destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Apparently, though, there weren't even 10 righteous to be found, and the cities are destroyed. It's one thing, of course, to challenge God about promises that don't look as though they'll ever be kept such as having numerous children when you're childless and 99 years old. 
but it's something else entirely to challenge God regarding something he proposes to do, and especially to challenge God so sharply. It's profane for you to do such a thing. That's the ultimate chutzpah. So where did Abraham get the idea he could do something like that? Where did Abraham get the green light to speak truth to power, even if that power was the ultimate power of the creator himself? It was in his DNA, as I said, and that's why God chose him in the first place. God chose Abraham because he knew, or at least hoped, that Abraham would teach his children, would teach us to, quote, keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right, unquote. He deliberately told Abraham about his plan to draw Abraham out into challenging him. People look at that incident and say Abraham was bargaining with God. There was no bargaining here. Every time Abraham threw out a number, God said, okay, 50, fine, 30, fine, 10, fine. God wanted Abraham to challenge him. God wanted Abraham to speak truth to power, even if he was that power, because Abraham would then teach that to us, who were to become God's kingdom of priests and holy nation, tasked to show the world by example how God wants people to live by doing, quote, what is just and right, unquote. And that task includes speaking truth to power. In fact, it requires it, including standing up even to God if we think God has done wrong. That's what God expected of Abraham. That's what Abraham did. And that's what we all must do. That's our role. And by us, I don't just mean the Jews, but all people of goodwill. Not only must we, the Jewish people, and they, the people of goodwill, speak truth to power. We have to inspire others to do so too. Abraham showed the way, but it was Moses who turned speaking truth to power into his life's work. That Moses spoke truth to power isn't really headline-making news. Of course he did. That's what the whole Exodus story is about. Time and again, he went before Pharaoh, the most mighty, absolute monarch of his day, and said in one way or another, let my people go, and if you don't, boy, are you going to get hurt so bad. But Moses didn't limit his truth to power talks to the king of Egypt. He never hesitated to challenge God when he thought God was wrong. He didn't waste any time getting up the courage either or testing the waters as Abraham had done. He didn't have to because Abraham showed him the way. Moses' challenges to God began at the very beginning of their relationship at the burning bush itself. Let's analyze what went on there. This was no dream. Moses wasn't in any kind of a trance. He's standing before a burning bush, and what he sees with his own eyes is that not one leaf is being damaged by the fire. He has to realize something extraordinary is happening. From somewhere inside the bush, or more likely from somewhere inside his head, he hears a voice that identifies itself as God. The voice tells him to go to Egypt and free the Israelites. Moses quickly evaluates the situation. He's standing before a bush on fire, but it remains intact. When he hears the voice... He doesn't even bother to question whether the voice belongs to God, because in his mind, there could be no other explanation for what his eyes are seeing. Yet despite the fact that he believes that God is indeed speaking to him, the first words he says to God is to tell God he chose the wrong person. No matter what God says, Moses objects and in a variety of ways insists that God's got it wrong, that he, Moses, isn't fit for the job and isn't going to take it. Finally, God puts an end to the sparring. God lets Moses know the decision is made and there's nothing more to discuss. 
The initial conversation between Moses and God is mild, though, compared to some of the others the two had over the next 40 years, including almost as soon as he arrives in Egypt and confronts the king. After making his demand of the Pharaoh, the king issues orders to make the lives of the Israelite slaves even more difficult and even more miserable than they already were. The people are furious with Moses for making their lives even worse, and Moses, in turn, is furious with God. Quote, Lord, why did you bring harm upon this people? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has dealt worse with this people, and still you have not delivered your people. Unquote. In essence, this is what Moses was saying to God. At the burning bush, I told you I can't do this job. But you sent me anyway, and now look at the mess I made. Worse, you haven't been any help at all. By standing up to God, and most important, getting away with it, Moses confirms to himself what God already knew, that he really was the right person for the job. Of course, that only emboldens Moses, with the Pharaoh certainly, but especially with God. Time and again over the next 40 years, he'll stand up to God, and almost always when God's anger against Israel is so great that it threatens Israel's very existence. The golden calf incident is a perfect example of this. Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God when the people commit a truly grave sin. They make a golden calf and offer sacrifices to it. Listen to how the Torah records it, especially the words both God and Moses use to describe their relationship to Israel. Quote, the Lord spoke to Moses, Hurry down, for your people, whom you, Moses, brought out of the land of Egypt, have acted basely. They have made themselves a molten calf and bowed low to it and sacrificed to it. This is a stiff-necked people. Let me be that my anger may blaze forth against them and that I may destroy them and make of you a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord God, saying, Let not your anger, O Lord, blaze forth against your people, whom you, God, not me, whom you delivered from the land of Egypt. Turn from your blazing anger and renounce the plan to punish your people. And the Lord renounced the punishment he had planned to bring upon his people, unquote. Meaning, he renounced a desire to destroy the Israelites, but he did not renounce a desire to separate from them. In other words, God relented on destroying Israel, but he has no intention of remaining with Israel from then on. Moses lets that one go for now because he needs to deal with that golden calf. As soon as he sees it, he goes ballistic. In fact, he's so angry that he smashes the two tablets of stone God himself inscribed. He then orders the Levites to go to the camp and kill everyone who took part in the golden calf heresy, and the Levites end up killing 3,000 people on Moses' orders. Clearly, Moses is quite angry, but his anger doesn't stop him from keeping God from acting rashly. He's also not prepared to let God off the hook, either. Quote, Then the Lord said to Moses, Set out from here, you and the people that you have brought up from the land of Egypt, but I will not go in your midst. Moses said to the Lord, this nation is your people, not mine. They're your people, God. Unless you go in the lead, do not make us leave this place. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your own, unquote. At one point, Moses even says this to God, quote, If you will forgive their sin, well and good. But if not, erase me from the record which you have written, unquote. That's a lot of chutzpah. That's also a lot of talking truth to power. These bouts between Moses and God are a feature of their 40 years together. Only once in all that time does God not give in to Moses, when Moses pleads with God to let him into the land of Israel. 
Truth be told, though, Moses didn't have much of an argument to that point, or at least he didn't make a persuasive one. Truth to power starts with Abraham and is turned into an art form by Moses. Then it's passed on to us. These stories are in the Torah and in the rest of the Tanakh, the Bible, for a reason. They're there to teach us that it's our job to speak truth to power, even if that power is God himself. If we can challenge the one who created all that exists or ever will exist by simply uttering two Hebrew words, vayhi or, let there be light, if we can challenge that most awesome of powers, God himself, how much more so must we be willing to challenge a creature who's but a mere image of God, no matter who that person is, no matter what power that person wields, no matter what the potential consequences to us may be? Think about that. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you think about this and my other Keep the Faith podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org and email me, please. Shabbat Shalom, and stay safe.